from our private experience, when we find a partner, it changes the meaning that we assign to our existence. And in the same way, I, I believe that when humanity finds a partner, an interstellar partner, it will change everything. It will give, it will make the universe uh, have some meaning uh, because they may have answers to questions that we didn't figure the answers to, but we could also interact with them in a way that uh, we can learn about our future. Because if they already went through part of our technological future, we will see technologies that we've never imagined. This is knowledge that should be shared by all humans because it will change our perspective uh, about our place in the universe. And for one thing, my hope is that if we find evidence for a smarter uh, civilization out there, then we would realize that the small differences among us humans uh, are meaningless, and we should treat each other as equal members of the human species. Hoyas Institute is a pioneer in the field of AI-driven comparative and qualitative analysis and was established with the primary goal of uncovering the hidden value left behind in complex data sets. Through a combination of human expertise and cutting-edge technologies, Koyas has developed a range of services that cater to various industries. They are providing valuable insights that can help drive growth, formulate competitive strategy, and to identify key patterns in targeted demographics. Head to their site to learn more, koyas.institute. That's C-O-E-U-S dot institute. Welcome to Merged. I'm Ryan Graves. Today, we're joined by a very distinguished guest, Professor Avi Loeb. Professor Loeb is a Frank B. Baird Jr. Professor of Science at Harvard University. He has authored eight books and over 800 scientific papers. Today, we're going to delve into his views on UAP. We'll probe the profound implications of these phenomenon to help us better understand our place in the universe. And now, Professor Avi Loeb. Avi, thank you for inviting me in your home. Um, My pleasure. It's uh, truly an honor to be here. Um, I'm a bit of a, a compatriot. I'm a Massachusetts native. Uh, yourself, uh, currently at Harvard. Um, it's always been a school that I've looked up to. It's been part of kind of my local culture being uh, from Massachusetts. So it's truly an honor and a pleasure sitting down across from you today in your home. Thank you. Um, I've been in Massachusetts for 30 years at Harvard. And uh, altogether, I, half of my life were spent here. The other half elsewhere, five years at Princeton and before that, 26 years in Israel. That's where I grew up. Wow. I'm very excited to talk about some of your experiences in Israel. But first, let's just start very quickly with the Galileo Project. Uh, we're sitting down across from each other because we're both um, tangentially involved in the unidentified anomalous or aerial phenomenon um, activities that have been going on lately. I think one thing that we can agree on is that there's not enough data on the topic. Um, can you please tell us what the Galileo is doing to help remedy that situation? Right. So first, why do we call it the Galileo Project? Because uh, the idea was conceived already by Galileo Galilei about four centuries ago. Uh, and it was a simple idea. Rather than insist of what the world should be, let's look through our telescopes to figure it out. And he found that there are moons to Jupiter, and from that came across the idea that perhaps the Earth orbits the Sun, that in fact not everything moves around the Earth. Mm -hmm. uh, and at the time, he was cancelled, uh, put in house arrest, uh, simply because the clergy at the time did not want the public to hear this opinion. 
Of course, that didn't change the motion of the Earth around the Sun. So that's the lesson to learn, that reality is whatever it is, and we better adapt to it. We shouldn't adhere to our wishful thinking, which usually puts us at a favorable light. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, the universe centers on us. That was a view advocated by Aristotle. Uh, and then for a thousand years, everyone believed it because it flattered their ego. Also, you see the sun moving in the sky, so that seems like a very viable idea. Um, but then Galileo argued otherwise, Copernicus ar argued otherwise, and we ended up figuring it out, despite the fact that there was a lot of opposition to that view. Mm -hmm. And now we launch uh, spacecraft that reach their destinations, thanks to our understanding of how the Earth moves around the sun, how the planets move around the sun, and so forth. Otherwise, we would never reach those destinations. We'd never get to Mars or to the moon. So reality is whatever it is, and we better not insist on our prejudice. That's mm -hmm. the lesson. And we apply that within the Galileo project uh, to objects near Earth that look weird, uh, that do not look like rocks that were found before from the solar system in our neighborhood, uh, because um, it is our backyard near the Earth. And um, if you go out to your backyard, often you see rocks that are familiar, but every now and then you might see a tennis ball that was thrown by a neighbor. Mm -hmm. And so that's the idea. Let's check if there are any technological devices that were produced by extraterrestrial technological civilizations because we know that um, most stars in the Milky Way galaxy and, and also in the universe formed billions of years before the sun. Mm -hmm. So time is measured in billions of years. Uh, in the cosmos, we live for, at best, one part in a hundred million of the age of the universe. That's a tiny blip. And moreover, space is vast. Uh, the size of the observable universe is a quadrillion times bigger, 10 to the power of 15 times bigger than the separation between the Earth and the Sun. Oh. So when Elon Musk uh, was interviewed um, recently um, and was asked about aliens, and he said, I don't see anything out there. And, you know, I'm the space guy and I would be the first to notice and uh, I will tweet about it. Uh, that's a little bit presumptuous because uh, if, if you compare it, let's say, to exploring the solar system, uh, what he witnessed in his life experience is similar to what an ant will see in an area the size of the head of a pin mm. relative to the size of the planetary system around the sun. So... You cannot say anything about the planets in the solar system just by observing an area the size of the head of a pin, which is pretty much the experience of Elon Musk. Mm -hmm. And moreover, uh, his lifespan is one part in a hundred million of the age of the sun. So claiming I don't see evidence is just like a homebody, um, you know, looking around the living room and saying... Where is everybody? We, uh, we don't have neighbors, the way Enrico Fermi said. Uh, and the answer is, well, you better look through your windows and you better use telescopes to do that, which is what the Galileo Project is doing. So mm -hmm. saying that we don't have extraordinary evidence for neighbors, technological neighbors, 
without seeking the evidence is inappropriate, scientifically speaking. It's not professional. You are just expressing your opinion without checking if it's right. And what Galileo taught us is that sometimes we have the wrong ideas. And the best way to figure out whether we are right or wrong is by collecting data and evidence. And of course, on this subject, the public has a lot of opinions. Mm -hmm. um, and not only the public, but um, people within academia have very strong opinions. And they are often amplifying the importance of us, uh, saying maybe we are the only intelligent species that ever existed since the Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago. I say that is very unlikely because there are tens of billions of stars in the Milky Way galaxy alone, and a substantial fraction of them, somewhere between 3% to 100% of the sun-like stars, have a planet the size of the Earth, roughly the same separation. So it's really arrogant to suggest that we are the only species that sent equipment to interstellar space, uh, especially when you deal with SpaceX of Elon Musk. You know, there could be Space Y, Space Z of other civilizations out there, very likely. And one thing to recognize is that we invest $2 trillion a year in military budgets worldwide. If we were to listen to the words of John Lennon in his song saying, imagine all the people living in peace. <laughs> and then we would have a surplus of $2 trillion a year, a year because we don't want to kill each other. Okay? What would we do with it? One, one possibility is space exploration. And I calculated that we could send a CubeSat to every star in the Milky Way galaxy, tens of billions of them, within this century, if we were to, instead of fight each other, explore space. So another civilization could have been more intelligent than we are. I mean, one reason I'm seeking intelligence in outer space is because I don't often find it here on Earth. <laughs> now, some of these experts that you've spoken to or you referenced, such as Elon or even maybe some of the more academically flavored folks that you've dealt with, uh, I'm sure there's been opposition. Do you really think that they go to those numbers and statistics that you just listed and say, even though I recognize these numbers are so large and the possibility of us being alone would make that such a small probability, do you think they truly look at that objectively when they decide not to look at this topic scientifically, or do you think there's something else stopping them? Well, there are several reasons why people in academia or the public would avoid seeking the evidence. One is um, the best way for us to be the most intelligent in the universe is not to find others. Okay, so then we win the competition, right? Because there is only one. Mm -hmm. uh, and we put blinders, basically not search, and insist on the fact that there is nothing out there. That in fact, it's an extraordinary claim to assume that there might be something out there. Then you don't search. And obviously, you, you, this is a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's a circular argument, and you will feel very comfortable. Uh, so that serves the ego of many people that want to believe that they are unique and special and serve some cosmic purpose. Uh, but it doesn't change reality, just the way that the Earth moved around the sun. You know, the, all these civilizations out there lived and died. Most of them died by now because, you know, most stars formed billions of year, years uh, before the sun. And within a billion years, the sun will burn up the surface of the Earth, uh, boil off all the oceans. Um, and so we wouldn't 
be able to stay here within a billion years. And that means if the clock started ticking a billion years earlier for another civilization, they had to, f to, to go on an exodus out of that planet at some point. They must have sent signals out uh, crying for help before all of them boarded spaceship, tried to leave the planet. We didn't listen because we were not around a billion years ago. <laughs> and um, there, there must have been a lot of cries for help within mm. the Milky Way galaxy. The point is, if they were sent electromagnetically, all these radio signals or whatever they were are now billions of light years away. So we can't detect them. And to say we don't hear anything for 70 years, which is basically the objective of the SETI community, to detect any signal electromagnetically from other civilizations, you know, that's a very short time, and there aren't many stars within 70 uh, light years from us. Um, Signal degradation is a thing, too, so the signals yeah. are not going to arrive. And also, it's not, I mean, it's just like waiting for a phone call at home. Mm -hmm. um, you need the counterpart to be calling you at the time that you're waiting, taking into account the, the time it takes the signal to arrive to you. Mm -hmm. um, and it may not be the case. However, if you um, are searching your mailbox for any packages that may have arrived, those packages may still be there even if the sender is dead. And the important thing to keep in mind is chemical rockets of the type that we are using um, move at a speed that is 10 times smaller than the escape speed from the Milky Way galaxy. So mm. they cannot escape. They basically move at the characteristic speed of stars within the disk of the Milky Way galaxy. Mm -hmm. And they're still around. So it's just like plastic in the ocean. It keeps accumulating. And by 2050, there will be more mass in plastic in the oceans than the mass there is in fish, which raises the possibility that we might eat plastic instead of fish I think we're probably or a plastic bit. inside fish. But the point is it keeps accumulating over time because unless we clean it up. But interstellar space is not being cleaned up as far as I know. And so these probes may be out there. And Elon sent a Tesla into space. <laughs> Just think of how many Elon-like entrepreneurs there might be on exoplanets, might have been over the past billions of years, that send not only cars, but small probes. And just to give you a, another sort of um, context, um, our telescopes and instruments were able to detect uh, objects the size of a football field within the orbit of the Earth around the Sun just over the past decade, mm. only over the past decade. So Enrico Fermi could not have asked where is everybody because he couldn't have detected those probes back 70 years ago or 60 years ago. The point is only over the past decade we had a survey of the sky because Congress in 2005 uh, basically told NASA to find 90% of all the objects bigger than a football field, 140 meters that may come close to Earth because they pose a risk. Mm -hmm. uh, we know that the dinosaurs were killed by a, a rock the size of Manhattan Island. And here we're talking about a size that is um, about 100 times smaller. But nevertheless, uh, we want to find even those so that we don't uh, incur the, the damage to our cities, to our mm -hmm. uh, 
precious strategic locations and so forth. And so um, as a result of that, a survey telescope named PanStars was uh, established uh, in Hawaii. And in 2017, October 2017, they detected a near-Earth uh, object. They, they labeled it a near-Earth object. That's why they looked at it, because it came close within a sixth of the Earth-Sun separation. And they realized it's moving too fast, so it came from outside the solar system. Mm -hmm. And then a couple of years later, together with my student, Amir Siraj, we realized that, in fact, there were two other uh, interstellar objects um, that uh, were detected, one in January 2014 and the second in March 2017, uh, seven months before the PanStars object that is called Oumuamua. And these interstellar objects were much smaller, about 100 times smaller, the size of a person, roughly. Smaller than Oumuamua? Yeah. Um, and they were discovered not from the reflection of sunlight, the way Oumuamua was. Uh, you can't see objects much smaller than Oumuamua with the PanStars telescope uh, within the orbit of the Earth around the sun. But these objects were discovered, the meteors, as a result of them bumping into the Earth. Uh, so they collided with the Earth and burnt up in the Earth's atmosphere, created a fireball. Uh, one of them released a few percent of the energy output of the Hiroshima atomic bomb. That was the smaller among them, half a meter in size, mm -hmm. uh, over the Pacific Ocean in 2014. And the second one released as much as the Hiroshima atomic bomb. It was about a meter in size, oh. twice as large, which means eight times the mass. Um, so... Um, Altogether, um, we have the first three interstellar objects, and each of them looked different than the space rocks that we had seen before from the solar system. Were the smaller ones of a more unique shape, elongated, similar to Oumuamua, or were they...? We couldn't tell the shape because mm. they exploded in the Earth's atmosphere, and no. all you could see is the fireball. That's how the U.S. government sensors detected them. And nobody looked back to realize that they were moving too fast to be bound to the sun. The way to figure out an interstellar object is that outside the solar system, it was moving towards the solar system at some speed, and then it gained more speed as it approached the sun. So usually near the Earth, it's moving faster than all the rocks that are bound to the sun. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you measure the speed, you can tell whether it came from outside the solar system or not. And uh, so these meteors, we figured out, in fact, the first one was moving at 60 kilometers per second outside the solar system towards the sun. And that's uh, faster than 95% of all the stars in the vicinity of the sun. So it was moving really fast. Mm. And an interesting possibility is that maybe it was a spacecraft, who knows, that was propelled. Uh, and the reason I say that is because the data that the government released allowed us to infer the material strength of this uh, meteor, which was tougher than all other meteors ever recorded in the catalog that NASA compiled, 272 of them, um, over the past decade. So uh, why would the first interstellar meteor be at least 10 times tougher than the next in line uh, from all the space rocks that were, that belonged to the solar system. So there are two possibilities. Either it came from some system that is very different than the planetary system that we live in, for example, an exploding star or a collision of two neutron stars, some other environment that makes very tough objects, mm -hmm. um, or it was artificial in origin. Uh, it was made of some alloy, 
um, like stainless steel. And um, we are going to find out. That's the amazing thing. We can follow the scientific method. It's not a matter of speculation because we are planning to go in summer 2023 to the Pacific Ocean and look for the fragments, the relics of this first interstellar meteor. Mm. And uh, we will analyze their composition. So we can tell if it's natural or artificial, depending on what elements made this mm -hmm. meteor. But what I'm trying to say is this was unusual, an outlier, an anomalous object. And it was the first one. And then the second one was another meteor. And it also had a material strength higher than all the rest of the meteors in the NASA catalog. So we now have two meteors from interstellar space that appear to be very different. The chance for that happening, you know, out of the distribution of material strengths uh, of the space rocks in the solar system is less than one part in 10,000, okay? So that's the first two objects. And then later, Oumuamua, the object from 2017, uh, appeared to be most likely flat based on the reflection of sunlight. Again, we don't have an image of it. Mm -hmm. And it was pushed away from the sun by some mysterious non-gravitational force. And there was no cometary evaporation apparent from it. So the question is, what pushed it? And I suggested it, it might have been just thin. Um, and then the sunlight bouncing off this object would have pushed it. And of course, nature doesn't make very thin objects, like less than a millimeter in, in thickness, which is what you need in order to give the push that was observed. Um, so I said, well, maybe it is a, a very thin object produced artificially. And recently I wrote a paper suggesting a specific scenario for that. Uh, you know, Freeman Dyson, uh, about 60 years ago, suggested that perhaps very advanced civilizations may build what is now called the Dyson sphere, basically a, 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 a megastructure made of tiles. Mm -hmm. And the simplest configuration, engineering-wise, would be to have tiles that are like uh, light sails. Basically, the radiation pressure from the star is balancing gravity. So they just hover above the star and you put lots of these tiles, just like kites. They float, hover above the star and you basically cover the entire star, mm -hmm. you know, let's say at the separation of the earth from the star roughly. And then you can harvest all the energy output. It's clean energy, except when we talk about clean energy, we are talking about the energy intercepting the earth. Mm -hmm. And here it's the entire sphere surrounding the star. So Freeman Dyson said that's a very good way to get a lot of energy. Uh, and perhaps some civilizations do that. And if any of them does that, uh, after a while, you know, the star will evolve and could break this Dyson sphere, either because it becomes brighter, so it basically pushes those tiles away very easily. I mean, they will just fly out because they were very barely bound to the star. They were not even bound. They were just mm -hmm. hovering. And now if the star gets brighter, they will just be pushed out. Or you can have asteroids breaking that megastructure. At any event, you could, what you would get as a result of that is lots of small fragments that are thin filling up interstellar space. And perhaps Oumuamua was a piece of a broken Dyson sphere. That's one possibility. It could be just space trash, like a layer from a bigger object. Whatever it is, I argued maybe it's artificial.
And just this suggestion got, I mean, people very emotional about it. Uh, I should say that when the paper was submitted for publication, it was accepted within a few days. And the referee was very positive about it. And at that time, most astronomers talking about Oumuamua, this object, were saying, it's really weird. I wonder what it is. Was and there any I, hesitation in, in publishing that idea or that concept? No, I didn't have. I'll tell you why. Because prior to that, I worked on the nature of dark matter. I worked on the first stars when nobody was working on that. And I wrote two textbooks about it. And uh, now it's the most celebrated frontier because of the Webb telescope observing the first stars. So I basically established the theoretical foundation to what we expect the first galaxies and stars to look like. And I wrote two textbooks about it. Uh, and nobody was interested at the time in this subject. I had a graduate student and at the PhD thesis uh, defense, uh, one of the reviewers said, uh, well, but you know, this will never be observed. This is, how do you know that what you're, you're working on is at all relevant to the future of astronomy? Um, so, you know, it taught me a lesson not to listen to what people say when you are pioneering a new frontier. Um, but I also worked on black holes, um, and I, I was the founding director of the Black Hole Initiative at Harvard, the only center worldwide that brings together physicists, mathematicians, philosophers, and astronomers to study black holes. And Stephen Hawking came to exactly this room. He was sitting where you are wow. back in uh, April 2016 at a seder, a Passover seder. Um, and he ate everything that my wife uh, served <laughs> to him. Uh, As uh, and he gave a speech, actually, just from the location where you are. Um, at any event, uh, I worked on black holes. Uh, but uh, I also worked on dark matter because most of the matter in the universe is a substance that is not the same as the ordinary matter that we are made of or that we see in the solar system. Mm -hmm. And back in 1933, it was a revolutionary idea that was proposed by Fritz Zwicky uh, from Caltech. And uh, people didn't, didn't really follow him uh, for about 40 years until it became more popular. And now, if you ask young people, they will say, of course, there is a huge amount of evidence that dark matter exists, mm -hmm. but we don't know what it is. So here Sounds is an familiar. example. Yeah, it's an example of having something that we don't find in the solar system. So just by studying your backyard, you will never get across the dark matter. Well, you could get across it if you knew from other data that it might exist, mm -hmm. which we know from studying the universe or the galaxy on the very large scales. Uh, but the point is nobody thought that there is a substance different from what the solar system is made of. In fact, even the sun was thought to be made of the same substance as the Earth. Um, you know, the first PhD in astronomy at Harvard University was by Cecilia Payne-Kopashkin, who applied quantum mechanics, that was about 100 years ago, wow. to the sun and interpreted the spectrum of the sun um, to argue that the surface of the sun is made mostly of hydrogen. And when she defended Henry Norris Russell, who was the director of the Princeton University Observatory, the most distinguished stellar astronomer worldwide, said to her, you should take it out of your thesis. It makes all of us know that the sun is made of the same stuff as the earth. 
And, you know, she was just at the beginning of her career. She took it out. And then he worked on the problem for four years and wrote a long paper saying, in fact, she was right, that the sun is made mostly of hydrogen. And now we know that it's not only the sun, but most of the ordinary matter in the universe is hydrogen. That was a major discovery. And so even that was a revelation 100 years ago, but then about a decade after Cecilia found that the sun is made of hydrogen, uh, Fritz Wicke realized that, in fact, mo the most abundant substance in the universe, in the mass budget, is actually unknown. It's dark matter. It doesn't interact with light. So I say, what is the lesson we learned from that? That what we find in our backyard does not represent the universe. That's really easy to, to understand. But just a week ago, Elon Musk talked on TV as if he didn't see evidence for aliens. And I say, well, obviously, people before Zwicky didn't see evidence for dark matter. We know it exists. And before that, people didn't realize that a decade before that the sun is made mostly of hydrogen. In fact, most, most, most of the ordinary matter in the universe is hydrogen. So you have to be humble. You can't just argue that based on your experience, you can extrapolate to the entire universe. And being modest and humble, learning from experience, is really the big lesson from the days of Galileo that we are applying to the Galileo project. And we're trying to understand those interstellar objects, trying to find the next Oumuamua, for example. There will be a telescope, a survey telescope in Chile called the Vera Rubin Observatory, starting operations in 2024. And we're planning to use the pipeline of data, which will become public because it's funded by the National Science Foundation, uh, we plan to analyze this data uh, and look for additional weird objects out there. And um, it's just like, you know, we went on a date with Oumuamua, we liked it, it looked weird and interesting, but by the time we realized that it's so interesting, it left through the front door and we couldn't really follow it. And so then what do you do? I mean, you can obsess with it, argue about it. And in fact, just a few weeks ago, there was another paper about Oumuamua in nature that we showed is wrong and we can talk about it. Um, but um, also there was an, a few days ago a paper analyzing the non-gravitational acceleration and confirming it again. So people keep coming back to it. But my, my point is, let's look for more of the same. You know, there must be more objects like it. And then we can get much better data with the Webb telescope because the Webb telescope will look at this object from a different direction than the Earth-based telescopes are looking at it. And then you can pinpoint the three-dimensional trajectory of the object very precisely through parallax, basically triangulation. And that would allow us to tell whether there is any propulsion to an object that comes from interstellar space. And so this activity is under the Galileo project. This is under the Galileo project. So that's one of the missions to find more objects like Oumuamua mm -hmm. or like the interstellar meteors and study them in great detail. And one interesting thing I realized this morning, I, was, uh, I have some notes about it, is that the Webb telescope can detect the infrared emission from an object as a result of the illumination by sunlight. So the object gets warmed and then emits. Uh, and within the orbit of the Earth around the sun, the, the characteristic temperature is the same that we have on Earth, uh, 300 degrees. And the peak of the 
uh, emission is at, at about uh, 20 micron wavelength, which uh, is being used by these goggles that the military personnel use at nighttime to see, because humans have the same body temperature roughly uh, above absolute zero as, as the Earth and as, uh, as an object illuminated by the sun. So the Webb telescope could see that radiation. Now, what will it tell us? If we see the heat emitted from the object and we also see the reflected sunlight, then we can figure out uh, the albedo of the object because if we know the position of it, then we know what should be the surface temperature of the object and, and we can disentangle the area of the object and the reflectivity of the object by observing the emission from it and the reflection from it. So altogether... We can even map the object in three dimensions uh, in the, if, it, if it rotates because the area keeps changing. And what we didn't know about Oumuamua is what is the albedo, what is the reflectance. So we didn't know precisely the area. And uh, also we observed it only from the Earth. And now we will have the web telescope. So altogether, we will have a wealth of data on the next Oumuamua that we can analyze. And that's one of the missions of the Galileo project. If we look. If, well, I will definitely look. <laughs> I will n not miss a, a second before we start collecting data. It sounds like you are you're trying to link and you know true to your statement about uh, how Elon Musk uh, is apparently approaching the problem by looking at a very small data set. You want to link what's happening. It sounds like in our atmosphere potentially to what's happening outside of our atmosphere. So here is an interesting anecdote. Um, the second interstellar meteor had the same speed as Oumuamua had at large distances relative to the sun, hmm. and also the same distance of closest approach. Interesting. So I thought maybe it was a probe released from Oumuamua. Mm -hmm. But then I checked and it came from a different inclination, so a different direction in the sky. So it wasn't related, but it gave me the idea of a mothership releasing probes. Mm -hmm. And this is something I discussed in my book, Extraterrestrial, um, which I wrote about Oumuamua in uh, January 2021. It, be, it had 28 editions in many wow. languages and uh, became bestseller in many countries. And I had about 2,500 interviews about this subject since then. Um, and just a week ago, there were 20 filmmakers and producers that approached me to uh, make a documentary film about the research that I'm doing. So, and also a playwright oh. uh, that sent me an email with the title, Avi Loeb on Broadway. <laughs> so I thought it was an April Fool's Day joke because it came a few days before April 1st. Mm -hmm. um, but then he attached to the email some photos of him with Barbara Streisand and with Dick Van Dyke, and they had the serial number from the wow. cell phone that he's using, and so it looked authentic. And by now, he already wrote several tens of pages for of display. Yeah, yeah. Ah. because I gave him the green light. Yesterday, I met with our second postdoc, postdoctoral fellow at the Galileo Project. So I, I received funding for three postdoctoral fellows in one year, um, and expansion. The, yeah, so th these, each of these postdocs uh, um, comes for three years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's about um, altogether 
it's equivalent to a, a donation of a million dollars, the three of them, um, just for th three years. But um, uh, the one that arrived yesterday, Laura Domin from uh, Stanford University, you know, she was considered the brightest uh, PhD student for many years uh, by her mentors. Uh, and um, when I called her to offer her the postdoctoral fellowship under the Galileo project, she was so thrilled and said, I can't believe that I hear your voice. And, and then I asked her yesterday, um, why is it? And she said, well, since a very young age, I was following those reports about unidentified aerial phenomena, about aliens, about... And I always wanted to be part of a scientific project that approaches this subject using the scientific method, meaning collecting data with instruments we understand, we calibrate under our control, and analyze it using the most sophisticated computer algorithms, which is pretty much what the Galileo project is doing. We can get into that. But she said, when you called me, that was a lifelong dream come true. And uh, I've never heard that. I was the director of the Institute for Theory and Computation for about two decades now at Harvard. And uh, I made offers to about 100 postdoctoral fellows during these 20 years. And none of these people who worked in theoretical astrophysics told me it was my lifelong dream to work on black holes or to work on the first stars or to work on galaxy formation. But she said that. And then when I mentioned it to the first postdoc that we uh, accepted, the Richard Cloet from the University of Cambridge in England, he said, for me, it was exactly the same. And they both had to compromise because their academic environment did not provide opportunities to work on this subject, scientifically speaking. And the Galileo Project is really the first one. Now, many people say there are many other organizations dealing with unidentified objects near Earth, and there is a clear difference. The Galileo Project is the only one dedicated to the collection of new data using the scientific method. All of these other organizations are either seeking old data or trying to push the government to declassify some existing data that the government has. And the problem with that is that it was all anecdotal. You know, either private citizens or the government were looking at something else and suddenly saw something that they didn't expect. Okay, so it's limited in this amount of information we can milk out of it because it was not anticipated. And also the sensors that the government uses or the, or, or the public use, uses um, are not of the highest quality that we have today. Mm -hmm. So instead of, once again, instead of obsessing with the past, I'm a very young person in my attitude. Let's just collect new data. And within a few months, uh, the Galileo Project Observatory that is now functioning will collect more data than was ever collected by all the reports on unidentified aerial phenomena mm. from one location at Harvard University, not far from where I live. Uh, and, you know, if you just wait a year, it will be 10 times more than ever collected. So why should we worry about the government releasing what they have? Why should we force them when the data was collected by classified sensors? You know, that's why the data is classified. It's not so much because of the content. To me, it's intriguing that the government is talking about it. 
uh, because it says there is something they don't understand. Mm -hmm. But the government is not a scientific organization, so we shouldn't ask them to do our job. And on the other hand, you have the scientific community, which I have a lot to say about, uh, which is reluctant to touch it. Why? Because it's a risky subject. And most scientists prefer to get honors and awards in a safe way without taking risks, which is completely opposite to the spirit of blue sky research. You know, the, the only reason there is tenure in academia is to allow people to have job security and to take risks. But the strange thing is that almost all of them, well, after they get tenure, start to worry about their image, stature, mm. prestige, and in order to get awards recognition from their peers. And therefore, they don't take risks. And they also don't want others to take risks because if they are experts, if they studied rocks in the sky for several decades and they are the expert on asteroids or comets, they would insist that everything we see in the sky is an asteroid or a comet. And the most extreme example is actually a young person uh, who wrote a review paper about Oumuamua. And he said to me in an email, he said, I just finished an extensive review about the comet Oumuamua. So I wrote back and said, what do you mean by the comet Oumuamua? We both know there was no cometary tail, there was no coma, there was no ev evidence for evaporation. And he said, well, I have this theory that when we looked at the object, it didn't have a cometary tail. When we looked away from it, it had a cometary tail. And uh, the quantum I, comet. <laughs> Yeah, and I say that's just like going to the zoo, looking at an elephant and claiming it's a zebra that shows its stripes when you look away. That is not the way the mainstream in science should mm -hmm. deal with an anomalous object. And, and the other thing is, I feel like the kid in Hans Christian Andersen's uh, tale um, who said the emperor has no clothes. Oumuamua is the emperor. The clothes are the cometary tail. I just say what I see. You know, I, I don't see a cometary tail. I say the emperor has no clothes. But everyone around me says, oh, no, 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 no. There are clothes. They're just invisible and they're beautiful. Like the most recent paper from a few weeks ago in Nature was about this comet being uh, made of water that broke into hydrogen and oxygen and the hydrogen is transparent when it evaporates. And we actually show that they made a mistake in the energy mm -hmm. balance of the surface. But... At any event, people keep insisting that indeed the emperor has beautiful clothes, but we can't see them. So how do you, well, it sounds like there's a younger generation that's more eager to jump into those conversations that might be more challenging. And I know there's, you know, as you alluded to, the problem with the older generation not wanting to experiment with maybe some new ideas that might cause the base of their knowledge to crumble. I get that. How does this make you feel with this new generation coming in? And how can we really tap into that, that eagerness, that excitement, that, that energy? Well, um, so the younger people also make a calculation because they need to think about their future jobs. And the calculation is when they see the pushback that I encounter, and frankly, I don't care about it. I don't care how many likes I get because I just want to do the right thing. I want to advance the knowledge of humanity in the context of whether we are the smartest kid in our cosmic neighborhood. And if not, let's learn from them. Mm -hmm. That's my objective. There is a lot for humanity to benefit from. And this is discussed in my next book, actually, that comes out in August 2023. It's called Interstellar. And um, um, it discusses the implications for humanity. So you see, when, uh, when you meet 
a partner, it affects you. And it, in my view, it will be a great benefit to humanity uh, to recognize that there might have been a smarter kid on our block because we can learn from it. Uh, and moreover, it will change our aspirations to space, will give us a better understanding of, about our place in the universe. And, you know, Steven Weinberg, the Nobel laureate in physics, said in, uh, towards the end of his book, famous book, uh, The First Three Minutes, he said, um, the more we understand, the, the more the universe appears comprehensible to us, the more pointless it looks. <laughs> and I say it looks pointless to cosmologists because they focused for decades on lifeless entities like elementary particles or stars or galaxies. These are entities that have no life. They are dead. And from our private experience, when we find a partner, it changes the meaning that we assign to our existence. And in the same way, I, I believe that when humanity finds a partner, an interstellar partner, it will change everything. It will give, it will make the universe uh, have some meaning uh, because they may have answers to questions that we didn't figure the answers to, but we could also interact with them in a way that uh, we can learn about our future. Because if they already went through part of our technological future, we will see technologies that we've never imagined. What about our past? Uh, do you uh, have any thoughts on the um, concept of panspermia? Yeah, so um, there are two types of um, ways by which life can move from one planet to another. Uh, in fact, uh, Mars uh, cooled before Earth and had liquid water and uh, an atmosphere on it for the first half of its uh, lifespan. Um, and so only about uh, two billion years ago, it lost its atmosphere and the liquid water evaporated because liquid water needs an atmospheric pressure to, to stay. Um, and so it's possible that life started on Mars before it started on Earth. And in fact, it's also possible we know there are rocks from Mars that arrived to Earth. One of them was not heated to more than 40 degrees uh, Celsius. So you could have tiny microbes uh, as tiny astronauts in, in the interior of a rock that would survive the journey from Mars to Earth. And perhaps we are all Martians. And when Elon Musk says he wants to die on Mars, it's just like wanting to go back to your childhood home and die there. Um, so we don't know whether life started on Mars and was delivered to Earth or started on Earth. And it's quite plausible that rocks made it with the kind of life. And one way to find is to find out the history of Earth uh, would be to find life, evidence for life on Mars. It's not easy, but uh, there are some attempts to do that. And if we do find life on Mars, the question is, is it identical to life on Earth in terms of the DNA structure? And if it is, there is a good chance that it was transferred between the two planets. And that's called panspermia. I'm personally interested in something that was never done, which is there are these lava tubes on Mars, which are similar to those that you find in Hawaii. Basically, when there is volcanic activity, 
lava flows and then um, it cools at the top first and you create sort of a crust that serves as a ceiling and then the lava continues to flow under that ceiling and you end up with a cave, mm. a, a tunnel. And you see that in Hawaii, beautiful lava tubes. Um, but the moon and Mars also have that. And um, what I'm curious about is, you know, we started in caves to protect ourselves from harsh weather conditions and so forth. And I'm curious to go into one of these lava tubes on Mars with a flashlight <laughs> and check without any paintings on the walls of those lava tubes from some beings that used to exist there. I'd go with you. I'll hold the light. <laughs> I mean, we can send a drone just not to risk our lives, sure. but it's quite possible that there were creatures on Mars. Mm -hmm. And one thing I calculated is uh, over a billion years, you know, the two billion years since Mars lost its uh, atmosphere and liquid water, uh, for every square kilometer on Mars, there were... Uh, asteroid impacts that released energy equivalent to 20 Hiroshima atomic bombs for every square kilometer. Just think about it. So much energy released. So it's very difficult to find on the surface skeletons or any, anything other than dust. Um, but in the caves, you might still find something, and especially because it's protected from cosmic rays. By the way, if we ever go there, uh, the first place to go is to these lava tubes, not to be on the surface because bombardment by cosmic rays can harm the human body and basically make it unlivable um, for, uh, within a few years. One on of those the problems we haven't quite solved yet and we're kind of looking past in some ways when we talk about right. going to Mars. And we started in caves and if we go to Mars, we'll end up in caves. That's what I'm saying. The humans yeah. uh, go back to their roots, uh, so to speak. But... Um, Altogether, you know, um, panspermia in the natural way is the transfer of rocks between two, two neighboring planets. And there are other planetary systems. Uh, for example, TRAPPIST-1 is an, an example um, uh, at about um, several tens of uh, light years away from us that has seven planets packed in, a very, in very close proximity. So if one of them had life, it's quite possible that rocks were liberated from that planet. These rocks are liberated when an asteroid impacts the surface and lifts some surface material, and it could include microbes. Um, so that's natural indirect panspermia, but there is also the concept of directed panspermia, where a civilization decides to send probes that would replicate life. Mm -hmm. um, and the way I think about the future of humanity is... Well, it's, it involves artificial intelligence, AI, because we are already at a point where GPT-4 has 100 trillion connections, only a factor of six shy of the number of synapses in the human brain, mm -hmm. uh, 600 trillion. So we are getting to the point where the complexity of these uh, language learning models um, like GPT-4 uh, are getting to the level of complexity of the human brain. So we want fully understand how they operate. But the way I see it is as an opportunity to send those systems to space because they could learn from experience and then we can harden them so that they don't suffer the damage from cosmic rays mm -hmm. or ultraviolet light or uh, they would not mind being dormant for millions of years on 
travel to another planetary system. And then once they get there, they could, if they have 3D printing capabilities with them, they can make the kind of life that we have here on Earth. So instead of sending passengers like in Star Trek, mm -hmm. and by the way, just a couple of days ago, I sent my wishes, best wishes to the producer of Star Trek uh, um, from 1966. Uh, he will turn 100 years old in, on May 1st, 2023. And he responded. Mm -hmm. Wow. And um, uh, I also met uh, a few weeks ago the uh, person who wrote the script for Contact. Oh, that's one of my favorite movies. Um, Jim Hart. And uh, he came to me and said, uh, you know, I think of you as the successor of Carl Sagan, he said. Uh, he also said that he believes uh, he spent three years with Carl Sagan and his wife, Andriana, that the hero in the film Contact represents Andriana, he thinks. Uh, oh. um, and um, so it's interesting uh, to see those people from the past. And in fact, I'm working... Uh, now with uh, the producer of another fantastic uh, film, science fiction film, Arrival, which I like the most, actually, because it talks about the uh, challenge of communication with something that is different than you are. That will be the next challenge. You know, The first challenge is to find something that is not natural to Earth, not a bird, not a bug, and not uh, also human-made, like drones, balloons of the type that the U.S. government shut down, uh, not airplanes, but it looks technological and it maneuvers in ways that we cannot explain using our own technologies. So if we find that, that will be the first revelation, which would be amazing. Then the next phase would be more challenging, and, and that would be to figure out the, in, the intent of such devices. What information are they seeking? What what do they represent? It's sort of like looking at being in a cave. I, I go back to the uh, cave allegory of Plato, which was basically dealing with uh, prisoners chained to a cave uh, and looking at the shadows on the wall in front of them from things behind them that they cannot see. So when we meet devi devices like AI astronauts from other civilizations, they would be the shadows of the senders. They will not be the senders. I don't believe we will have an encounter with biological creatures mm -hmm. because they cannot survive the journey over millions of years and they need a lot of patience. And uh, It's much more likely to be a technological gadget mm -hmm. uh, with AI. And so these AI systems, just like we are creating AI systems in our image, whatever we find from another civilization will be in the image of the senders. And just like the prisoners in Plato's allegory of the cave, we are chained to Earth by gravity. Okay, so it's a perfect match. This is our cave. We are looking at the shadows of the senders uh, of those gadgets. And the question is, could we figure out what the senders were like? At the very least, we can learn something about our technological future because these AI systems will probably be much more advanced than ours. So, you know, uh, Alan Turing, about um, um, almost 100 years, 90 years ago, uh, came up with the imitation game of uh, the Turing test, uh, figuring out whether a machine uh, is a machine or a person 
based on the interactions, the exchange of uh, information that you have with it. And um, the way I see the imitation game is between our AI systems and extraterrestrial AI systems. Because mm -hmm. once they come here, the visitors, we will use our AI systems to interpret their AI systems. And, and in fact, their AI systems might be so much more advanced than ours that ours would like to imitate them. And that would be the imitation game. <laughs> Very interesting. Yeah. Well, we've talked a little bit about, you know, I think how you've, you've got to where you are today. And I think I see some of the, um, the correlators with your past research and how you've kind of taken that bold stance on UAP. But people are familiar with that, I think. People might not be as familiar um, with the earlier past and some of your earlier experiences. Um, so if we could, I'd love to hear, uh, as, as, you, as you know, I'm a pilot, former military pilot, and you have some very interesting military experiences yourself. Um, the big question is, how did that really lead to, to where you are today? But first, let's talk a little bit about, you know, what you experienced in the military when you were uh, in Israel. Yeah, I'll be glad to. Um, first, I just wanted to mention that the, the Galileo project uh, is trying to figure out the nature of the objects that you were reporting about when mm -hmm. you were a fighter pilot. And um, so we have an observatory operating at Harvard University 24-7 and basically taking a full picture of the sky in the infrared, the optical band. Uh, it has a passive radar system and an audio system. And uh, we hope to make uh, multiple such sensors such that we can triangulate in all of these wave bands um, and find the distance to objects because that's crucial. Um, and then um, we are currently planning to have copies of this first observatory and place them in different geographical locations. And the number of copies will depend on how much funding we have. So currently I received a few million dollars from people who came to my home uh, during the pandemic and without any fundraising offered uh, to support this research. And uh, we have about 100 people involved in the Galileo project with 1,000 showing interest and so forth. Um, but if we get several tens of millions of dollars, that would allow us to build tens of copies of our first observatory, which is operating already. So we know exactly what needs to be done. We have the expertise. It took us a year and a half to build it. A lot of hard work. So all we are missing is several tens of millions of dollars in order to get to the bottom of the nature of those unidentified objects. Because we calculated that if we have tens of observatories spread over the US or elsewhere, we should have enough statistics to figure out what these anomal anomalous objects in the sky might be. And we are also analyzing data from satellites of Planet Labs. And um, so altogether, I'm hopeful that with enough funding, within a year or two, we will have much more information. Um, now, how did I get to this point? Um, I started as a farm boy. You know, I was uh, very much connected to nature. I grew up on a farm. I used to collect eggs every afternoon. Had the, I have two sisters. And in fact, um, when collecting eggs, uh, they forced me to the left lane because they were right-handed. I was also right-handed, but I had to collect the, the eggs with my left hand. So I, I was able to do it both ways. And um, I remember, you know, 
finding the chicks when we got them to the farm the, at night with a flashlight looking for them, uh, <laughs> which is similar to going with a flashlight on Mars now, I guess. Uh, but, um, um, and then uh, I used to drive the tractor to the hills of the village and read the philosophy books because I cared about the big picture. That, that was the thing that attracted me. I read the books on existentialism, uh, mainly by French philosophers like Sartre or Camus, and uh, really saw my future in philosophy because mm. this was the stage where the biggest questions were asked. Um, Had you been introduced to mathematics to a high degree at that point? Or so I, I learned mathematics and physics in high school and mm -hmm. I was very good at it. I was at the top of my class. But uh, what I cared about are the big questions. Mm. And in Israel, you have to serve in the military. There is no way out. And uh, because I was good in math and physics, I was selected to a program that allowed me to uh, finish a first degree in physics and mathematics um, and, uh, for three years and then uh, serve uh, five additional years developing um, research projects for the, that are useful for the defense of the country. Um, and to me, that sounded the closest to philosophy that I can do rather than run in the fields with a machine gun. Mm -hmm. um, and so I agreed to go there. And uh, in fact, this program was very special because we went to all the military sections, uh, uh, including the Air Force and the, the Navy. And, and we drove tanks. We, I parachuted three times, awesome. jumped from a plane, and it took a few minutes. And of course, we knew what to do uh, if the you know, parachute doesn't open up. That was very important. Uh, <laughs> I was very good at sports. Uh, among um, the top three of a few thousands in my high school. And um, when I was in the military, I was uh, offered to join the Delta Force, uh, which is a very challenging... Uh, you essentially, know, special operations. Special yes. operations in Israel, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I declined it because um, I wanted, I was mostly interested in the intellectual work. And, mm -hmm. um, and so what I ended up doing is develop a new research project at age 21 um, and um, proposed it to the Strategic Defense Initiative of Ronald Reagan, President Reagan, mm. uh, in the mid-1980s. Uh, in fact, General Abramson who led that program, came to visit Israel. And I presented the project to him. In fact, I have a photograph of it. I don't think it was ever made public. Uh, that's me. Here. Uh, sorry, here. here. Uh, and this is uh, General Abramson looking at my presentation with a slide projector. Back then, that was the technology. <laughs> uh, and uh, we presented it to him in February... Uh, 1986. Oh. Um, and um, this was the first international project supported by the U.S. And that brought me uh, to Washington, D.C. Uh, to visit, because I was still in, in the military at the mm -hmm. time. Uh, and in one of the visits, I went to Princeton, uh, the Institute for Advanced Study, because I was told that's a very prestigious place uh, where Albert Einstein was faculty. And uh, I remember the administrators there saying, we, we don't allow anyone to come here for a visit. Um, please send me your CV. And I sent uh, the list of publications. I had 11 publications by, by then. Um, 
And it was almost at the completion of my PhD thesis. And by now I have more than a thousand. But uh, back then it, it was just the beginning. And she allowed me to come over. And uh, she said, well, you know, there is only one uh, faculty member who has plenty of time. All the others are busy. His name is Freeman Dyson. <laughs> and so How she intro introduced me to Freeman. And Freeman said, you know, there is a faculty person here that... Uh, is married to an Israeli. Uh, his name is John Bakal, and he loves to speak uh, Hebrew. Uh, do you know him? And I said, no, I've never heard of him uh, because I never worked on, in astrophysics. I worked in plasma physics. That was the project. Mm -hmm. uh, we actually had a patent also on the project. Um, anyway, so, it, so uh, Freeman picked up the phone and called John and said, there is an Israeli here visiting. Uh, do you have a few minutes to meet with him? And John said, yeah, why, does, uh, why don't we have him for lunch? Uh, and, and then invited me for a month and then ended up offering me a five-year fellowship, which was a huge risk from his perspective because I had no track record in astrophysics. I didn't know how the sun shines. And John's main contribution to astronomy was to explain how the sun shines and to predict how many neutrinos should be emitted per unit time from the sun, mm -hmm. which didn't agree with data, and then it was interpreted in terms of the mass of the neutrino. But at any event, it was very embarrassing for me to enter a new field after, after my military service, not knowing anything, because Princeton was very competitive, and I had to learn the vocabulary from scratch. Um, it, it felt like uh, there is a... Well, you, were you were learning English at this point when you say learning vocabulary? No, uh, vocabulary of, of astrophysics. Okay. I knew English not very well, but uh, I knew some of it. Now I'm a writer. I'm <laughs> Come <laughs> but uh, back then, uh, it took me a while to start dreaming in English. I dreamt mm. in Hebrew oh, interesting. for a while. Uh, anyway, so um, uh, after, after five years at Princeton, where I learned the vocabulary of astrophysics... I had basically to invent myself because nobody guided me as to which areas are most interesting. And therefore, I decided when I received an offer from Harvard University, I mean, at the time, nobody was tenured at Harvard from within for mm. about 20 years. They didn't tenure mm. anyone. So nobody wanted the job. The, the <laughs> In fact, they offered it to someone who declined it. And then they said, OK, we'll go for Avi. So they, I was the second in line. <laughs> they gave me the offer. And... Um, I was not worried because I could always go back to the farm, my, father, <laughs> my father's work, life mm -hmm. work, and um, there was nobody to continue his, uh, the work on the farm, and uh, I was very happy to do that. Um, uh, my mother was in, into linguistics, philosophy at the time, and um, that's, uh, you know, a lot of my inspiration came from her, basically, mm -hmm. the intellectual curiosity. But at any event... Um, I went to Harvard because I didn't. I had Plan B to go back to the farm. I, mm -hmm. I didn't worry about job security, and I was tenured uh, three years later because um, there was uh, Cornell was looking for someone, and they made me a tenured offer, and uh, and then Harvard came forward uh, six months later and offered me a tenured appointment. So um, altogether, you know, I ended up. Um, in an arranged marriage, okay? <laughs> and at the time when I got tenure, I realized that even though it was arranged, I'm married to my true love <laughs> because there are some fundamental questions in astrophysics that I can explore using the scientific method. And I'm very different than my colleagues 
Now, in 2011, I became chair of the astronomy department at Harvard and served for nine years, the longest serving chair. I'm still the director of the Institute for Theory and Computation that, uh, for about almost 20 years now. And I was the founding director of the Black Hole Initiative at Harvard. And so I was very much part of the establishment. Uh, and moreover, I chaired the board on physics and astronomy of the National Academies. And I was a member of uh, the um, uh, board on, uh, of science and technology advisors of uh, the U.S. president, uh, the White House. And um, so um, I served on many important boards. I also chaired the scientific advisory board for the Starshot project, which is to send a probe to the nearest star within a human's lifetime. And uh, that's where I got introduced to the concept of a light sail, you know, mm -hmm. because uh, that's the only technology that would allow us to reach a fraction of the speed of light. And whether there is a probe moving at that speed through the solar system is still an open question because astronomers would not notice it, by the way. Uh, it would just appear in one image and then they would dismiss it because most of the rocks move at a speed that is 10,000 times smaller. So anything moving so fast, close to the speed of light, would not be even analyzed. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, um, altogether I was part of the establishment, but then in 2017, Oumuamua was discovered. And uh, I should say about Oumuamua that when I suggested that it may be a very thin object, uh, it sounded far-fetched, why would it be so thin? But then three years later, the same telescope in Hawaii, PanStars, discovered another object, which was pushed away from the sun by reflecting sunlight. Mm -hmm. They verified that and had no cometary tail, no cometary evaporation. It was given the name 2020 SO, discovered in September 2020. And then within a few weeks, the astronomers realized, oh, it actually came from Earth. If you go back in time, it was a rocket booster that was launched by NASA in mm. 1966 as part of a lunar lander mission. Mm. It's called 2020 SO. It has a Wikipedia page. You mm -hmm. can check it. And that was an object that we produced. And we know that it was made of stainless steel. That's why it didn't evaporate. Mm. <laughs> there was no coma around it. And it had thin walls. That's why it was pushed by reflecting sunlight. Mm. So here is a technological object that is artificial, not a rock. And we know that because we made it. The question is, who made Oumuamua? Hmm. And that's a fundamental question. So here is an example that my background in philosophy helped me focus on questions that have a big impact on the future, on our future, uh, which are not necessarily popular. That's the strange thing. I told my wife, look, this is amazing. Here is a subject that would impact humanity greatly, yet all of my colleagues in academia are ignoring it. Makes no sense whatsoever. And just, you know, if you want, if we, we live for such a short time, let's focus on substance, you know. You know, the nature of dark matter, even though we invested billions of dollars in searching for the dark matter, we haven't found it. But the nature of dark matter, we have very little impact on our lives. And yet, not even a percent of that money was invested in the search for objects near Earth in a scientific fashion. Mm -hmm. That's why we have the Galileo Project. 
So, you know, we talked a little bit about how I think your goal with Galileo is to perhaps be able to look beyond our atmosphere and be able to link what's happening outside the universe to potentially what's happening with UAP in our uh, atmosphere. Is that a fair? Do, do you think we can really ever figure out the origin and understand UAP only looking at them in our atmosphere? Well, so there are two uh, types of objects that we may expect from an extraterrestrial origin. And I should tell you that um, I was at the Washington National Cathedral for the Ignatius Forum together with uh, the Director of National Intelligence, Avril Haynes, uh, only about five months after she delivered the first report to the U.S. Congress about unidentified aerial phenomena. Uh, there was also Jeff Bezos in the green room, but I approached Avril because she has a bachelor degree in physics from the University of Chicago, so she speaks my language. Uh, and so I went to her and I said, these objects that you reported about, what is your hunch? What are they? And she said, I don't know. <laughs> and I believe her um, because um, I think the government sees things they don't fully understand. It's impossible from anecdotal data to figure out what this data represents. And the only way to figure it out is through a systematic survey of the sky with the best instruments we have currently and getting new data, which is pretty much the philosophy of the Galileo project. Uh, we don't want to rely on past data because it was compromised, it was not intentional, the, the search. Uh, and we want to uh, calibrate the instruments we're using to have them under full control so that we can reproduce whatever is out there. And uh, one thing about reports is that they correlate with the population density those from civilians. Uh, there is no other correlation uh, if you look at it. And they basically, they represent the number of eyes looking at the sky. And to me, that says one thing, that uh, unidentified objects may be everywhere. And if you think about it, it could be balloons. Balloons are everywhere. Uh, and uh, when you look around, you would see balloons. Now, the director of National Intelligence report uh, did mentioned the, the recent one from 2022, that about half of the objects may be balloons. Um, from the government's perspective, of course, uh, the, the key question is, do they pose a national security threat? And because they worry about the safety of the nation, the safety of military personnel. Um, and of course, for that, they need to understand what all the objects are. Um, and sometimes they need to shoot them down. Uh, to me, from, from a scientist's perspective, if the government shoots down objects, it's great because first it protects the nation, but also it reduces the clutter in the sky. So it, re it reduces the level of noise that they have to deal with. But as a scientist, I want to know whether even one object out of hundreds is from an extraterrestrial origin. And that possibility, as of now, is not ruled out. In fact, Avril related to that, she mentioned the word extraterrestrial in her uh, discussion uh, in Washington when I was there. Uh, the other thing that happened was I was sitting next to her when Jeff Bezos was talking about the fact that uh, he was inspired by watching as a kid the Star Trek, inspired to go into space, to venture into space and establish Blue Origins and so forth. And I told Avril, well, um, I never liked science fiction. I enjoyed doing science, but I separated from fiction. Um, and when I see in science fiction a violation of the laws of physics, it bothers me. Uh, it doesn't look real, and I can't enjoy it. And she said, 
Avi, we have to work on you. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, um, you know, the, let me explain, actually. The reason I'm reluctant to consider new physics is because the known physics explains so much and is being tested so much that, in fact, physicists in laboratories work for decades to tease out a tiny deviation from what we know about physics. And fundamental particle physics did not discover anything fundamentally new over the past maybe several decades. I mean, the Higgs boson was found, but it's old news because... It was believed that it must exist already from the 60s, but nothing really fundamentally new about the universe was uh, discovered in laboratories. And it shows you how difficult it is to discover new physics. And in order to argue that what you see represents new physics, you need to have exquisite data. You need to have the best data so that you rule out all interpretations based on known physics. However, in the public, the conception is very different. People may argue that if you see a hole in the clouds, it, it may be a wormhole, a tunnel in space-time that allows you to move faster than light. Of course, it allows for a wormhole, but it's not evidence for a wormhole. Evidence in science for new physics means that you have such good data that you can rule out a meteorological origin for the hole in the clouds. You have to understand what is happening there to exquisite precision. You can't go to a place for a day, see something unusual and claim, oh, that's a miracle. I mean, of course, if someone would claim that they see a burning bush like Moses did in the Bible, the Old Testament, you know, I would argue we should send infrared cameras to figure out what this burning bush is. Okay, so in, with, in, with present-day science, it's instruments that count. And, you know, uh, for the Soccer World Cup in Qatar, FIFA established a semi-automatic procedure using cameras and artificial intelligence to figure out offsides. So instead of relying on referees, or the audience or the players, whether there was an offside. They have an automated system. Why? Because when there is a car accident, you can't really rely on the people involved as to what happened because they give conflicting reports to the same event. Mm -hmm. And so think of the Galileo project as the same tool that FIFA is using to decide about offsides. The Galileo project is building an assembly of instruments that will give us confidence in our conclusions and allow us to infer in an objective manner using computer algorithms what we are looking at and what really happened. And, you know, if FIFA realizes it, we should all realize it about unusual objects in space because if we were to rely on eyewitness testimonies, we'll end up with the same situation as we end up in the courtroom where people are put in jail and then DNA testing shows that they were innocent. Let me ask you a question about your soccer example. In, in that example with the automation, uh, someone who was not familiar with that game might infer that there was some type of you know, magic or influence that was uh, causing that 
determination if someone was offside or not to happen. But from our perspective, it's clever engineering versus something miraculous. So in the conversation about new physics versus what we're seeing, how do we know we're not just observing clever physics versus, or excuse me, clever engineering versus new physics? And where's the line? Well, so far we have no evidence for new physics um, because what I'm trying to say is that to have evidence for new physics, you need extremely good data. You can't just argue that you see dark objects in the sky that you can infer the distance to using an approximate method, as some astronomers in Ukraine were trying to do. And they argue that these objects are moving faster than the escape speed from the Earth, 15 kilometers per second at a distance of 10 kilometers. And they were saying these objects are the size of an airplane, like 10 meters. Um, and... I said, well, you know, if there were objects moving through the atmosphere and they were blocking light, uh, that's what these dark objects should have been doing, blocking light, then they interact also with air molecules electromagnetically because if they block light, they interact electromagnetically. And so there is no way out from them producing a fireball, just the way meteors do because at these speeds. And uh, they would not look dark. So the fact that these objects look dark already sets a maximum distance from the observer. And if, on the other hand, the Ukrainian astronomers would have triangulation, then it would be a much more convincing case. They did have triangulation for other objects, and those ended up being at exactly the elevation that you expect spy satellites to be. So I say, well, your bright objects maybe satellites, because that's the distance that they hover above the Earth. But the dark objects did not have triangulation. And when I said there is no fireball, therefore it must be closer, maybe artillery shells, maybe bullets flying closer to you, these would look like dark objects moving fast across the sky, then a lot of people in the public got upset and said, well, 20 years ago there were other people reporting about objects moving through air without uh, much friction. And that is completely irrelevant. Any case should be dealt with uh, the data that we have for it, irrespective of other cases. And if the data is not exquisite, if we don't have distance measurements, we can't argue for new physics. That's all. That's the way science is done. And that's the professional way of approaching it. Um, and, you know, you have scientists in academia reluctant to get engaged with unidentified objects because they say, well, we don't want to be in the same bed with people that argue on any incomplete data set that there is new physics. I say this is inappropriate as well because we have the ability to collect the data. We, we should not say extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence without seeking the evidence. This is uh, Carl Sagan's uh, mantra um, and my mantra is extraordinary evidence requires extraordinary funding <laughs> and effort. You need to put the effort to do the work. And this is hard work, collecting the evidence in a reliable way, using well-calibrated instruments that you fully understand and are under your control is hard work. It's much easier to be a blogger that didn't write a scientific paper for 15 years to argue that you're an astrophysicist and you have an opinion about whether you UAP are this or that. That's very easy. You just sit back and say, make, you know, tweet about it. And you can tweet about it in a way that reflects the opinions of your tribe. And you will get a lot of likes. 
and then someone from the other tribe will get a lot of likes for the opposite opinion, but that will not promote our knowledge of what reality is like. We will just have these tribes like we have in politics. You can't rely on people to tell you what reality is. You have to rely on instruments, and you have to rely on reproducibility of results through instruments, quantitative measurements. That's the way science is done. Now, this is not just theory. The reason the two of us are using these microphones and that this conversation is recorded ele electronically is because we understand quantum mechanics, and nobody expected quantum mechanics in the first case. So a hundred years ago, it was discovered experimentally. And what did we learn from that experience? That we should listen to nature, not to people. Because even Albert Einstein, 1935, wrote a paper saying quantum mechanics does not have, or I don't believe that quantum mechanics has spooky action at a distance. That's the way he called entanglement. And the Nobel Prize in Physics in 2022, 80, uh, uh, 97 years after that, was given to the experimentalist who proved Einstein wrong. And so even the brightest mind among physicists of the 20th century made mistakes. This is one of he them. He built a model, and his model he, didn't encompass everything. Well, no, he had the intuition that uh, God does not play dice, kind of, that quantum mechanics can be explained using our intuition that there is a deterministic reality behind it, but he was wrong about it. And we still don't understand quantum mechanics. Uh, he was wrong um, within five years of 1935. He was wrong on two other counts. One, he claimed that black holes do not exist because he said that when a star collapses to make a black hole, it will have some rotation. And as a result, that would prevent it from collapsing all the way to a black hole. And I think that was a result of his um, relationship with Oppenheimer, who at the time had a model for a collapsing star that was just spherically symmetric with no spin. And he was the director of the Institute for Advanced Study, Oppenheimer. And they had a sort of a, a, a very unusual relationship. But um, uh, the third mistake that Einstein made between 1935 and 1940 was to say that gravitational waves do not exist. And he wrote a paper about it with Nathan Rosen and submitted it for publication in the Physical Review. And the paper was refereed, and Einstein was upset because the referee did not accept the paper for publication. And Einstein said, I will never submit another paper to the Physical Review because they dare to doubt my opinion. And this referee actually saved him from a public emb embarrassment because you know, uh, we now know, we measured in uh, 2015 gravitational waves with the LIGO experiment. And the Nobel Prize was awarded to that. And also the Nobel Prize was awarded to the discovery of astrophysical black holes. So over the past uh, six years, there were three Nobel Prizes in physics correcting three mistakes that Albert Einstein made between 1935 and 1940. Those people who proved him wrong got the Nobel Prize. What does it show us? That when you work at the frontiers of physics, you know, obviously you don't know what's right, what's wrong, and you can make mistakes. That's a signature of taking risks and willing to push the envelope. So, you know, it's possible that Oumuamua was a nitrogen iceberg. 
And if the next object comes along and we see that it's made of nitrogen, I was wrong. It's possible that unidentified aerial phenomena are just balloons. And we will go with the Galileo Project observatories and find the balloons. Uh, it's possible that the interstellar meteors were tougher than iron because the data uh, reported by the U.S. government had error, errors in it. And once we go to the Pacific Ocean with an expedition and scoop the ocean floor with the machinery that we just tested last week, and it works amazingly well, uh, we have magnets to collect magnetic particles, we have a sluicing device to collect other types of particles. It's possible that we will find that it was just an iron meteorite and that uh, the data from the U.S. government was inaccurate. I mean, the U.S. government, in a way, supported this uh, study more than the academic community because uh, the first paper that we wrote about this interstellar meteor with my student, Amir Siraj, suggested that it's interstellar. It was the first interstellar object ever detected in 2014. And the paper was no, not accepted for publication. It was rejected by the referees who argued that they don't believe the U.S. government. And uh, I then, at the time, was uh, the chair of the board on physics and astronomy of the National Academies. There was a member of the board from Los Alamos. And he connected me to some people behind the national security fence. And... Um, uh, Eventually, someone uh, working at the Office of Science and Technology Policy in the White House uh, enabled uh, a letter uh, from the U.S. Space Command under the Department of Defense to NASA confirming publicly at the 99.999% confidence that this meteor came from outside the solar system. That was amazing. The Department of Defense came to my defense. <laughs> when I was confronted by colleagues in academia that should think blue sky, right? Because there are hundreds of papers about the nature of dark matter talking about particles that we know do not exist by now. And so why should that be allowed when the U.S. government reports data, you should block the publication of claiming they don't know what... So, you know, in a way... Um, do you think that's why Dr. Kirkpatrick came to you out of anyone he could have come to in academia? Um... Well, I think probably the reason he came to speak with me uh, and he came to this house, not far from where you sit, and um, there were plenty of people that came to where you sit. I mean, not just Hawking and Kirkpatrick. <laughs> there were company. many multi-billionaires and over the past year or two, yeah, a lot of them. Um, if I, I, Someone told me that they would have loved to be a fly on the wall because there were so many interesting conversations that didn't make it to the public in this house. Uh, but um, I can only conjecture, and I, I think uh, the reason he told me that he's visiting Boston, that he would be in the area and wanted to, to see me, is because, um, you know, I, I use common sense. I don't pretend to know more than I know, and I use the scientific method, which is the only way to make progress. I'm not using prejudice, and I'm not worried uh, about how many likes I get. That's the other quality that you must have because I get a lot of pushback and personal attacks. And by the way, the personal attacks, most surprisingly, come mostly from the SETI community. Hmm. That was really surprising to me. And um, it's sort of it's akin to a cat that is used to drinking cow milk and then realizes 
that other people are talking about almond milk and the, ca the cat says, I loathe the use of the word milk in that context. So, um, <laughs> it, you know, the SETI yeah. community decided to ban any lecture on objects near Earth that could have originated from extraterrestrial technological uh, civilization in their conferences. And that was just a year and a half ago. And that ban was not lifted as, as far until now and as far as I know. And you ask yourself, why? I mean, just think about people working on the nature of dark matter. There are people searching for weakly interacting massive particles using the Large Hadron Collider at CERN. And imagine them saying, we ban any discussion in our conferences on the dark matter being potentially an axion, a very lightweight particle that has nothing to do with weakly interacting massive particles. Imagine them doing that. That would be completely unprofessional. Why? Are they, why, why is it special in this case? Is it something about the mirror that we're potentially going to look back at if we see other life or other consciousness out no. there? Or is it just... No, uh, well... Career the fear. SETI uh, was at the fringes of astronomy for many decades. And they developed this psychology of being apologetic for what, doing what they're doing and getting a little bit of funding from the mainstream of astronomy. Now, uh, one thing that happened in the background was all these un unsubstantiated claims by people in the general public about uh, visitation by aliens, uh, abductions, and things that were not substantiated by scientific evidence. And as a result, um, a lot of scientists do not want even to discuss the, the, that possibility. And the SETI community lines up with the mainstream on this so that they would not lose the little bit of uh, uh, allowance that they're given. So um, I came into the scene unapologetically. Why? Because I worked on the nature of dark matter. And at the time, uh, you know, we suggested all, all kinds of possibilities and it was very much encouraged to consider all possibilities because they stimulate experimental work and then we learn something new as a result. And so in this context, when Oumuamua came along, I said, well, maybe it's artificial. That was an alternative. And in my mind, it was just like suggesting the dark matter is of a specific type so that experimentalists can move on and check it. So I suggested Oumuamua might be artificial so that we will next look for other objects like it or look at it, the data from it and try to figure it out, okay? And um, that sounded to me like a very positive development in science because when there is something anomalous, you might learn something new. It may well be a nitrogen iceberg, but it may also be artificial, so let's check. And uh, that was part of the scientific process that I'm used to from cosmology about the dark matter and so forth. And then suddenly I get hate messages, uh, you know, like s arguing... Um, you know, you're pissing us off with this uh, thing. And uh, why did you write this book? And um, that to me sounds unprofessional because the way to figure it out is through additional data. Now, since I don't see others doing it, I'm a theoretical astrophysicist. I think of ideas. You know, when I met uh, John Bacall for the first time, he said, what kind of computer languages uh, do you know? And I said, well, I know just the very basics. Uh, because, um, you know, I, I only use computers when I really need it. 
and he said, how do you imagine having a career in science with very limited knowledge of computer science? And I said, well, we'll see what happens. And I've been able to pursue a very successful career thanks to the fact that I have ideas or that seem to me obvious and commonsensical, but for some mysterious reasons, others take a while before they realize that it may be... And I, I noticed it on several occasions when I proposed an idea that people dismissed on the spot. There were several such instances related to black holes, related to the first stars, and then it became the hottest subject in their uh, discipline. And so that illustrated to me that how narrow-minded people are, those experts that uh, you know, uh, basically dig into a subject very deep because uh, they don't look sideways and they very often hit uh, the bedrock uh, of their expertise where nothing much happens and then they sort of do boring stuff on things that we already know. That's the life of an expert. However, it's much more exciting to, exp to look sideways and consider possibilities that might be realized because if they do get realized, it changes our perspective about reality. And, and those objects near Earth that look weird are an opportunity to learn something new. So I thought everyone would uh, accept that and celebrate that and move on. But since nobody is doing the follow-up work of seeking evidence... I decided to lead the Galileo project. I'm a theoretical astrophysicist and I'm leading an experimental project. And that to me is a way of educating two communities. One is the general public that speculates on the subject. There are science fiction writers that imagine all kinds of things and people claiming to have seen anomalous things, uh, not in the scientific way. Okay, so to them I have to, to explain that New physics requires exquisite data. You can't just argue it based on very poor data. Uh, and then to the scientific community, I'm trying to educate my colleagues that they should be willing to explore the unknown in a way that doesn't show prejudice. And that is as challenging. So altogether, I would argue common sense is not common. <laughs> and it's just like in politics. You have people on the extremes, and if you try to walk the, in the middle uh, what, in a balanced way, it's not a path that is very populated. And uh, it's not easy because you get attacked from both directions. And one thing about the scientific community, you might argue, okay, well, maybe they represent sort of the conservative view until proven wrong. Uh, I don't think so, because if you look at theoretical physics over the past four decades since I started, um, the mainstream was engaged with string theory in extra dimensions that were never verified experimentally that might not be verified in our lifetime. And they just do mathematical gymnastics and talk about concepts that exist in extra dimensions that we cannot test experimentally, we cannot falsify. And in fact, there are many versions of the theory, we don't know which one is correct, okay? So it's just like meeting a, someone who claims that he is a plumber, okay? And you say, okay, can you fix my toilet? And he says, that sounds too complicated, I can't do that. So you say, okay, well, maybe you can fix my faucet? And this person says, I don't think so, it's really complicated, but... But if you put goggles on your head 
and go to the metaverse, then you will see me there solving all your plumbing problems. Now, putting goggles on the head is equivalent to going into a virtual reality that we cannot test experimentally. And that's what the string theorists are doing. They're saying, just imagine extra dimensions that we haven't found, that we cannot do experiments in, and in that, we can solve some equations. But I ask them, okay, what happened before the Big Bang? And they say, that's too complicated. What happens in the center of a black hole? We can't deal with that. So I rest my case. There's no predictive power in there. Well, the hypothesis. issue is falsifiability. Unless you put your ideas under the guillotine of experiments, you will never know if they're right. You can spend your life imagining things. Let me give you an example. I was at a lunch with a very distinguished string theorist uh, a few months ago, and I asked him, what is your most important paper, scientific paper? And he said it, it was about supersymmetry. And I just realized, you know, uh, why, why is he so proud of this paper? After all, the Large Hadron Collider looked for supersymmetry in the most natural range of parameters and didn't find it. So it's ruled out. We don't know if it exists. If it exists, exists in a different range of parameters that was not the natural one. And yet, this person, this scientist, is proud of this paper. So that reminded me of the Lubavitch community in Brooklyn. They believed that their rabbi is the Messiah. So they actually built a replica of his apartment in Brooklyn and placed it in Israel because the Messiah is supposed to arrive after he, he dies, supposed to get to Israel, and they wanted him to find the toilets. So they built a replica of his home in, in Brooklyn, of the apartment in Israel. They so much believed in it. Uh, and then he died. Okay? So that was an empirical fact. He died, <laughs> just like the experiment by the Large Hadron Collider. Supersymmetry is not there. Okay? The rabbi died and didn't come back as a messiah. No. What they said is, we just need to wait. What did this string theory say? We just need to wait for the next accelerator. <laughs> so I ask you, for 40 years, working on extra dimensions, the multiverse, ideas that cannot be tested, and then when one aspect of your castle is being tested, it's not being found, supersymmetry, and yet you are proud of that, and you say we just need to wait. How is that different from a religious belief? So what's going to fill the gap then? Experiments. Well, Evidence. as far as, yeah. As far as mm -hmm. extra dimensions? Well, to, to fill the gap from uh, string theory, right? So I just... Oh, I, uh, I offered some of my colleagues that work on string theory to test their theory. They just need to get into a black hole. And near the singularity, the curvature of space-time is so large that they can test their theory. But, but one of them said that I have an ulterior motive of sending them into a black hole. <laughs> can, we, can we simulate any type of event horizon with entropy or temperature or some type of isolation and experiment with some of the mechanics around um, an event horizon or a black hole more specifically in a lab? Yeah, so the, there are lab experiments that, are, that 
produce environments analogous to a black hole, but it's not a black hole because a black hole is defined by a curved space-time. That was the innovation of Albert Einstein. Uh, what they do in the lab is having some fluid mechanics that instead of the speed of light, you represent uh, light by sound waves and there is a speed of sound and you have a horizon of that and then you see some effects related, but it's not really gravity. And the way Einstein, you know, the, the pioneer, pioneering uh, idea that Einstein had was based on Galileo. Galileo realized that all objects fall, fall the same way under the influence of gravity. In fact, uh, there was an astronaut that went to the moon and, and uh, since there is no atmosphere there, he dropped a hammer and uh, a, a feather and they arrived to the ground exactly at the same time. That, in, in air, of course, there is friction that uh, prevents the feather from falling as fast. But uh, that was the realization that um, Galileo Galilei had in Pisa. And by the way, I was invited for four lectures at the Cool Normal Superior. They were called uh, Galileo, Cathedra Galileo. That was my first introduction to Galileo. It was about a decade ago. I was the, uh, they have it as a very special event every several years. And that is the most prestigious uh, institution for science in Italy. Um, and thinking back, my connection to Galileo started long ago, actually. But, um, uh, and, and by the way, when uh, Oumuamua, um, uh, the, the paper about it uh, came out, uh, and I went, I went just a few days later to an event in Berlin, and um, there, was, uh, there were so many reporters, uh, as I arrived there, wanting to speak with me. They put everyone in one room, like tens of reporters, and an Italian reporter from the back of the room shouted, do you think you are Galileo? And I said, no, I'm not pretending to be anyone. I'm just talking about, you know, what I think this object might be. And of course, any discovery of a, a relic from an extraterrestrial civilization would be the most significant discovery that humanity ever made. So um, in a way, you know, um, it will be just like the Copernican revolution, except this time, it's not about our physical place in the universe, but our intellectual space, place in the universe. Uh, anyway, coming back uh, to um, the issue of um, uh, gravity. Um, so Albert Einstein realized that if all objects fall the same way under the influence of gravity, perhaps it's a property of space and time because they all respond to the same space-time. And so he suggested that the curvature of space and time is gravity. So space and time are not flat the way Newton thought about them. And if you think about the sun, it curves space-time just like a bowling ball that you put in the middle of a trampoline. Okay, so there is a rubber surface and the bowling ball stretches the rubber surface, makes it curved. And so if you put a marble and give it a kick at the right speed, it will move in a circle around the bowling ball, right? and uh, on the trampoline. But now if you remove the bowling ball and the trampoline surface would be flat, this same marble will move in a straight line. In, in the same way, the Earth moves around the Sun in a circle under the influence of gravity because it has just the right speed. It was created from a disk of gas, debris, from the formation process of the Sun that was orbiting around the Sun in circles. 
and the Earth condensed out of that, and therefore it moves in a circle. Uh, but if you were to remove the Sun, just like with a bowling ball, the Earth would continue on a straight line uh, like the marble does. So that was Einstein's insight, that um, gravity is not a force, it's actually the curvature of space and time, and uh, a black hole represents that to the extreme in the sense that uh, as soon as Einstein came up with his theory of gravity, uh, within uh, a few months, he received a solution to his equations that he couldn't derive, a fully nonlinear solution, a complete solution to his equations. It was derived by a physicist, an astronomer uh, named Carl Schwarzschild, who was also Jewish, but the difference between Einstein and Schwarzschild is that Schwarzschild was a patriot. Einstein was a pacifist. And Karl Schwarzschild was the director of the Potsdam Observatory and in 1915 decided to volunteer to take part in the First World War, to go to the front against the Russians. And um, uh, he from there he um, wrote three important papers uh, and then died uh, in uh, the middle of 19... 1916, so shortly afterwards. Uh, but Einstein received a postcard from Schwarzschild that had a solution to his equations of a point mass, which is what we now call a black hole. Basically, if you take the mass, for example, of a star, and the star consumes all of its nuclear fuel, because it's basically a nuclear reactor. You can think of the sun as a nuclear reactor held together by gravity, that's all. And once the fuel in the nuclear reactor is exhausted, by the way, the sun is... Uh, seven billion years away from that fate of exhausting its nuclear fuel. So roughly in the middle of its lifespan, it's 4.6 billion years old and it has seven billion years to go or so. Um, once it consumes its, uh, its nuclear fuel, it, it, it contracts under gravity. The sun doesn't have a large mass, so it will become a solid um, metal basically, uh, which is called a white dwarf uh, that is roughly the size of the Earth. Stabilize at some point. Yeah, it will contract until um, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle of quantum mechanics will prevent electrons from overlapping anymore. Mm. So there would be a maximum density, and that's called a white dwarf. It's basically a piece of metal the size of the Earth with about 60%, two-thirds of the mass of the Sun in it. That's the fate of the sun. We see a lot of white dwarfs, almost as many as stars like the sun, because some, most of the sun-like stars formed billions of years before the sun. By now, they died. And those civilizations are somewhere else, by the way. However, their star became basically a metallic object the size of the Earth, with 60% of the mass of the sun. And the rest was dispersed. Um, so that's what would happen to the sun. But if you now take a star that has tens of times the mass of the sun, there is so much gravity that the core of the star makes a black hole. And in fact, we see the events of the formation of a black hole from the edge of the universe. Because when this process takes place and the core of a star collapses, some of the material is spewed out, ejected into jets that drill a hole through the envelope of the star. And if we happen to be aligned with those jets, we see so-called gamma-ray flashes or gamma-ray bursts from the edge of the universe. This is another discovery that the U.S. government made first because they put satellites to look for gamma rays from nuclear explosions by the Soviets to 
make sure that the Soviets do not uh, uh, explode above the atmosphere. You know, there was a ban on, the, there was a treaty to ban such explosions. And But the U.S. wanted to make sure that there aren't any, so they put these gamma ray sensors um, above the atmosphere and every few days they saw something. And I'm sure in the first few days in Washington, D.C., probably there was a lot of alarm, <laughs> but then they realized, no, it can't be the Russians. And then the group in Los Alamos said, well, it's actually coming from far away, uh, based on the fact that the sources of the gamma rays moved on the sky uh, in the way that you expect uh, from a very distant. And these uh, are pulsars? So, no. So at first people said, well, you know, let's put them in our galaxy um, because then you don't need as much energy if they are relatively nearby. Mm. But then it was realized that they are distributed roughly uniformly around us. Mm. And um, the less popular view was, oh, maybe they come from the universe at large. The more popular view was, oh, they come from far away in the galaxy, like the halo of the galaxy. That was the popular view. And NASA built, invested in a gamma ray telescope to resolve the distance puzzle of gamma ray bursts. And uh, they put a state-of-the-art gamma ray sensors, but dismissed uh, a suggestion to put an X-ray sensor. And the Italians and the Swiss, for a much lower budget, said, let's put an X-ray sensor. That, that was on a Beppo-Sachs mission that they launched. And they were the one to make the big discovery in 1997 that they saw an X-ray flash coming from a gamma ray burst. And the gamma rays uh, are so few, there are so few photons, you can't localize the event with gamma ray telescopes very well. But we, in X-rays, they could localize it and see that there is a galaxy sitting on top very far away, so they could tell the distance. And that uh, implied that gamma ray bursts are at cosmological distances, and they release as much energy in the jet as you find in supernova explosions. So that was a realization. Once again, it shows you how science is done. It's done by iterations. People make mistakes along the way, and we need to accept that because that's the only way. If you don't take risks, you will never make discoveries. And people that are risk-averse, those experts, quote-unquote, that do not want to risk their reputation, you know, they reduce their chances of making an important revelation at pushing our scientific knowledge. Uh, so now we can see those events that give birth to black holes at the edge of the universe. Mm. Do you, sorry to interrupt you. I was going to ask, do you think we're on the, the precipice of a paradigm change? Yes, but I think it requires hard work in, the, in terms of getting evidence and data. You know, the philosopher Schopenhauer said that there are three phases uh, for truth to be unraveled, and that is definitely true in science. The first phase is one in which the truth is ridiculed. And obviously, in the case of Galileo, we know that was the case. In the case of UAP and Oumuamua potentially, or interstellar objects being of artificial origin. It's the, it was the case initially. You know, that conversation was ridiculed. The second phase is one in which it, uh, people find it necessary to argue that it's wrong. And I got an email last week from someone who congratulated me for getting to the second phase because <laughs> there was this nature paper trying to argue that Oumuamua was a hydrogen iceberg and so forth. So people argue that it's wrong. 
The third phase is one in which the evidence is so clear that people say, oh, obviously it's self-evident. And in fact, when that will happen, if that will happen in the context of objects from a technological origin near Earth, then I'm quite confident that the SETI community will say, oh, this idea was discussed for decades. It was obviously a possibility for all of us. There is nothing really new in this finding. And we said it first. That would not surprise me. <laughs> there is an interesting anecdote about black holes. Um, uh, under us, where we sit right now, there is a basement, very big basement of my home. And my home is old. And at some point, uh, a decade ago, the basement was flooded. Uh, and a, a plumber came over and I went with him to the basement and we realized that the sewer is clogged by tree roots. And it took a while for us to fix the problem. And during that, those hours when we had our conversations, and this was a real plumber, he actually solved the problem. Caveat <laughs> <laughs> uh, <Can't> that. <laughs> yeah, during those hours, well, first he told me about his personal life. I really, you know, I have no hierarchy in terms of people I speak with and I enjoy conversations. And, you know, I don't pay more attention to senior colleagues than to junior colleagues. And the plumber was as interesting as my colleagues in academia. <laughs> Uh, and during that uh, conversation, I realized, well, isn't that similar to what happens near the center of a black hole? Because there are these theories that if, when matter falls into a black hole, I mean, we know there is a point near the center where Einstein's theory breaks down. We call it a singularity because the curvature of space-time blows up. The density of matter goes to infinity. Uh, and then people speculate. I mean, we know that the reason the Einstein's theory is incomplete is because it doesn't incorporate quantum mechanics. That's what string theorists are trying to do, unify, marry quantum mechanics and gravity. Um, but as, as of now, we don't have a predictive theory that combines quantum mechanics and gravity and says what happens near the singularity. What is the replacement for the singularity? Mm -hmm. So some people speculate maybe the matter that flows in goes into another universe. Maybe it's a pathway somewhere else. Uh, I'm, after witnessing the uh, clog in my basement, I realized maybe matter just collects there. Okay, just like the water. I thought it goes, uh, I didn't think actually where it goes. Uh, there is a re reservoir that the town owns. And it go but once it was clogged, then it started collecting in the basement. So in much the same way, um, perhaps there is an object at the center of a black hole and matter that falls onto it collects around it. And this object can have the highest density that is possible in nature, which is called the Planck density. Uh, and we will never know whether an object like that exists because it's hidden from us by the horizon of the black hole. The black hole is a, a, the ultimate prison. Uh, it has, according to Carl Schwarzschild, has a region around it uh, from where light cannot escape. Nothing can escape. Mm -hmm. So you can check into that region, but you can never check out. Hotel uh, California. <laughs> had to do it. Well, uh, yeah, it's also like uh, Las Vegas. Uh, what happens <laughs> in a black hole stays there. Uh, but um, 
uh, it's possible that there is near the center uh, a star-like object. And um, in fact, I'm currently working on a paper that relates to this idea. And it was all inspired by the sewer in the basement. Uh, just to show you that, you know, the ideas that I have, first, are not difficult to explain. They're relatively simple-minded because, you know, I, I'm a farm boy. <laughs> Second, uh, you know, they are not necessarily the direction that other people take. And um, the only way to verify reality, whether it, it, it agrees with my notion of it or someone else's, is by experimentation. And that is the path that I'm taking with the Galileo project. I completely surrender my pride, my ego to whatever nature tells us. It's a learning experience and we shouldn't assume that we know the answers in advance. And therefore, you know, I very much hope to see a tweet from Elon Musk when the Galileo project finds evidence for an extraterrestrial device in our backyard. I hope he does. Avi, are you familiar with Chaim Ashad? He's the former director of uh, Israeli's equivalent to NASA, essentially. Chaim Ashad wrote uh, an email to me at some point. Um, the, he made a statement uh, to a major Israeli newspaper that he knows that there is some uh, classified information that indicates a galactic federation of uh, intelligent civilizations. Now, my take on this is that it's not supported by any documents or any direct evidence. And the problem I have is there are many people who claim that they are Napoleon. And when you ask them for their ID, they cannot provide you an ID of Napoleon. Also, I know that Napoleon, the true Napoleon, uh, died. So it's unlikely that those people are Napoleon. Okay. And if they keep insisting on that, you know, there are places where you put such people. So if you insist on a notion that you can provide no evidence for, that's not a good place to be. What you want to say is something is known and I have a way of proving it, or you say nothing. Or you say, I'm seeking the evidence for it. That's also legitimate if you say it's possible and I'm seeking the... But he was claiming that there is evidence, but he can't provide any evidence for it. And um, so I just don't know what to make of it. It's not very different from eyewitness testimonies or people that claim that they were abducted. Mm -hmm. And I'm not certainly not expecting or asking you to justify or defend anything he said, but I was curious just due to your background whether there was any communication. Actually, you did I, mention a letter. Could you perhaps speak to that? Well, uh, I should say Haim Eshed uh, has a very reputable uh, uh, career background mm -hmm. in the Israeli intelligence agencies. So uh, he's very respectable, but I was just surprised that he speaks about it without showing any evidence. And... Um, you know, it's possible the government has data that uh, was not uh, released to the public, but um, I prefer to believe that the government is simply incompetent scientifically. They don't know what to make of whatever data they have. And to non-specialists, it may look very unusual, but the only way to advance our knowledge 
is to get better data ourselves so that we are not at the mercy of government officials telling us what the sky has. This is, the sky is not classified. We can look at it. So we have access to the source. So why should we rely on the government to tell us what the source is? Do you think there's any policy or legislation that um, would help enable that more public conversation? Um, yeah, I do think that uh, Senator Gillibrand, Kirsten Gillibrand, is promoting uh, important initiatives, uh, including the establishment of the old Domain Resolution Office, uh, ERO, um, and um, also making sure that it gets uh, funded and um, uh, opening uh, the path for people to report about things that they saw that were unusual. But I also think that this uh, approach will not bring us closer to scientific understanding of what these objects mean. All it will do is, uh, you know, at best, identify some balloons and tell us some other objects have been noticed that are uh, strange and unusual, but in order to figure them out, we need better data. And uh, I think the only way for us to get that data is to, to collect it ourselves and make it open and have the analysis being transparent. And, uh, because if it's a matter of national security, then it's not interesting scientifically. I don't care what the Chinese are making as a scientist. Uh, but if it's extraterrestrial, then national borders are irrelevant. It should be knowledge that is shared by all humans. It shouldn't be the preview of, the, uh, of President Biden to know about it first, for the same reason that when Cecilia Payne-Kopashkin found that the sun is made of hydrogen, it wasn't the U.S. president who knew it first. Okay, it was the entire scientific community. So this is knowledge that should be shared by all humans because it will change our perspective. Uh, about our place in the universe. And for one thing, my hope is that if we find evidence for a smarter uh, civilization out there, then we would realize that the small differences among us humans uh, are meaningless. And we should treat each other as equal members of the human species. Because if you look at all the atrocities throughout human history, they were shaped by groups of people feeling superior relative to other people, which makes very little sense. Uh, given the perspective of the universe at large. Mm -hmm. Yep. I, I think I agree with you. I, I don't know if really the United States is the vehicle that could be the, the, the agency to make such a proclamation, to draw a conclusion about such a data. Uh, I'm personally of the opinion that this, this is a conversation that we can really never reach a conclusion to until we have a full worldwide, you know, international conversation about it. Right. And the one thing that is interesting is that I had visits to this home <laughs> See? Yeah. by people from Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. um, and to me, that illustrates that there is something they don't fully understand, that they need the help of scientists. Uh, and the way I see it is that the work of scientists is complementary to the work of government. I don't want to have access to classified information because it will tie my hands in doing my scientific work and, and, and uh, disclosing uh, the results we get uh, openly. Uh, but I, I also don't want uh, classified information because uh, 
in principle, we can design instruments and put them together and get better data than the anecdotal reports that government, the government has access to. And we heard that the hearing at the, in the Senate by uh, Dr. Uh, Sean Kirkpatrick that he established two teams that go over 650 reports. And um, the one team is uh, populated by intelligence experts and another by scientists and engineers. And, you know, the best you can expect from this kind of a, an exercise is that uh, they would identify some objects some of them would be of national security interest, some may be of national security interest, and some would be we don't know. Okay? Those that we don't know are of most interest to me. However, we can't revisit those events. We can't get better data. That's all we have. So they will remain unknown. The only way to make progress is get better data in the future, not do it anecdotally, but just monitor the sky systematically, 24-7 from many locations, see what we find, and figure it out. And that's what you're doing. That's what I'm doing. And I, I don't need anyone to help me in that regard, except we just need some funding. And I hope that there would be curious, uh, wealthy individuals like Elon Musk uh, investing in the Galileo project so that we can figure it once and for all. And we would... Uh, reveal the results in an open fashion, remove the stigma on the subject, and if there is something out outstanding out there, we will talk about it in an open way and um, publish it in peer-reviewed journals. Uh, if there is nothing, if everything looks like balloons, we can move on. Why waste more time on it? So I think it's a win-win situation. I agree with you. I'm really happy you're looking into this and applying your skill set and all the experience that you've garnered an incredible life that you've lived uh, to bring all that expertise onto this topic. So thank you, Avi. Thanks for having me. And I hope that within a year or two, we'll have something interesting to report because, you know, this is a path that was not taken, the road not taken uh, in the spirit of the words of uh, Robert Frost in his poem. And the one advantage of taking a road that was not taken is that there may be low-hanging fruit since nobody picked them up. And obviously, we'll dis put them on display and everyone would see them. I promised the curator of the Museum of Modern Art that if we find any technological gadget in the Pacific Ocean, I'll bring it for display in New York City because it represents modernity for us. Um, and someone wrote an email to me and said, please don't press a button because it will affect all of us if you find a gadget. And I said, don't worry about it. I will not press any button. <laughs> we, uh, you know, and, and also it's unlikely that we will find iPhone 100 uh, at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. But you know, uh, if you ask me what my uh, dream is, it's very different from the dream of Elon Musk to die on Mars. My dream is to die in interstellar space. Uh, I just imagine myself being on a mission um, to space and uh, then the mission fails and my body drifts into interstellar space, uh, maybe kicked by Jupiter into interstellar space. And then I spend a billion years there before I collide with an exoplanet. And um, then I would appear as a meteor in the sky of, if that planet has an atmosphere and is habitable. My hope is that there would be an astronomer over there 
looking at the sky and saying, look at this uh, interstellar meteor. Uh, let's figure out what it was made of. And uh, that astronomer goes to the ocean on that planet and collects the pieces of my body and the spacesuit or whatever was left and um, puts them on display in a museum. That would be the greatest honor for me to be recognized that I existed by another civilization in a billion years. Incredible. That would be quite the honor. And your DNA would be there for study. <laughs> Maybe replication. Yeah, that's not... Uh, I mean, I don't <laughs> see ourselves, humans, as uh, the pinnacle of creation. I think that the AI systems will supersede our abilities in the not-so-distant future. So... You know, I'm very proud of our technological kids, uh, as much as I'm proud of my biological girls. I have two daughters and very proud of them, and I don't fully understand them. I think we are now at a stage where we don't fully understand GPT-4, uh, but we should be proud of whatever those future AI systems accomplish, including venturing into space and becoming AI astronauts. Speaking of siblings, they may not be AI, but what do your children think of this topic? Your daughters? Um, they are excited about it, but um, I'm still uh, hopeful that they will follow my footsteps in science. Uh, it's not at all clear. Um, but I don't force myself on anyone. And, um, uh, you know, uh, my hope is that uh, during my lifetime, we'll know the answer to the questions that we were just talking about. That's the hope. Thank you, Avi. Thanks for having me.